Well, good morning, everybody. Can you guys hear me? We're getting there, close. Almost there, yeah, there it is, there it is. Well, good morning, folks, my name's Joe. Uh, we've got an amazing message going on today, but first, let's pray together as we enter into God's word. Lord, we wanna come before you this morning, and God, I'm just asking that you would take over. Lord, we want your words to be said, not mine. God, thank you so much for giving us your word, that we can dive into it, not just on Sundays, but each and every day. And Father, I'm asking that as we enter into your word this morning, would you unveil things that are waiting for us to learn, things that are waiting for, to be revealed to us, and that we could apply them to our lives. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In your name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Like I said earlier, my name's Joe. Um, I run the youth ministries around here. And I occasionally, Jeff gives me the opportunity to speak every once in a while. And this morning especially, I'm very, very excited because we have been going through a new series together called Big Faith, No Fear. Man, it's amazing how easy it is to say that. That's so weird. I don't know why someone else would have a hard time saying that. But yeah, we have been going through a series called Big Faith, No Fear. Uh, as we've been getting started with 2018 over the last couple of months. And for this series, we've been looking into the life of Nehemiah and really studying who this man was and what he did for the people of Israel, specifically the people in Jerusalem together. Well, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to take the weight off. Now, we are in a new year, and resolutions are usually a part of a new year, and I'm not sure if this is something that you've done before or maybe even this year, but a lot of people enjoy or try very, very hard come January to take weight off. And I, I'm a guy where I, I do enjoy going to the gym, I love to work out, and I love to exercise, and I gotta tell you, I've tried a lot of different things, some of them really, really stupid, some of them have worked, some of them really have not, and I, I found that when somebody starts a New Year's resolution, specifically when it comes to taking weight off, they're willing to try just about anything. And folks, I gotta warn you, there are some things out there that are not very helpful. We've got three of those today. So I'm gonna show you a couple of pictures here of some diet fads that I promise you are really not gonna be that helpful if you're trying to take the weight off. Let's take a look at the first one here. Has anyone ever heard of diet sunglasses? I promise you, these are all real things. I'm not making this stuff up. Diet sunglasses are a real thing where they have blue shaded lenses. And a bunch of psychologists got together and they had this mindset, they had this thought that went through their minds and said, hey, if everybody looks at everything in life, including food, through blue lenses, Blue is not a color associated with food. And therefore, if people see food through a blue lens, they won't be as hungry or they won't crave it as much. I don't know who these psychologists are, but I know in my world, it doesn't matter. I, I can't even see the food. I will still eat the food. Blue lenses will not make a difference at all. So I would say that this is not a good idea. Next one up, this is also a real thing, folks. Diet, dinner, wear. You can put, get these little uh, forks and spoons and knives out, and you got this little battery pack that you plug in there, and sure enough, you better believe it, after you take a bite, there will be a red light, and you can kind of see that little red light. That red light will start blinking at you for 60 seconds. You're not supposed to take another bite until the red light's done blinking and it goes back to green. 
And the thought behind this is that way you can masticate or chew your food for 60 seconds. It'll slow down your eating and therefore you won't eat as much by the end of the meal. This is a real thing, folks. Red light for 60 seconds before it goes green again and you can take another bite. Diet dinnerware, you can buy it on Amazon. I promise you that much. Let's take a look at the last one. This one might be one of my favorites. There's a real thing out there called flavor spray. Flavor spray comes in 25 different flavors. It's you know, a bunch of different chemicals, artificial, natural flavorings. And what you can do is you can spray it on any food that you want. So if you enjoy bacon, but you know you should be eating celery, don't worry. Just get some flavor spray, spray some bacon flavoring on your celery, and you won't know the difference. Oh, it's a genius invention. Flavor spray. Once again, another item that I promise you, it's really not gonna work for a diet. It's really not gonna work to take the weight off. We try very, very hard to take weight off, not just physically, emotionally, spiritually. We try to take weight off of ourselves and stress off of ourselves and things that tie us down and hold us down. We try hard all year round to try to take the weight off. And today, this morning, what I wanna talk about is something much, much more important than taking the weight off physically. I want to talk about taking the weight of life off spiritually so that we can run the race of life with perseverance. Let me read to you a little bit what I, about what I'm talking about. It's in Hebrews 12.1, and this is where I get this concept for this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yeah, I want to talk about taking the weight off this morning, but I don't want to talk about a new diet fad or a new workout craze. I don't want to talk about physically taking the weight off. I want to talk about spiritually getting rid of the weight that holds us down, getting rid of the sin that so closely entangles us. Now that I've said that, I want to be clear. If you've never sinned before, you're allowed to leave now. No one. Okay. I guess this message is for everybody. I feel better already. I know I'm a sinner. I've messed up many, many times. I honestly, I can't remember if I've shared this on Sunday morning or just with the kids and youth group. But um, one of my favorite stories I like to talk about when I was a kid is uh, one time when I was about 10 years old, and it was a summer, probably some, I don't know, Tuesday morning in the summer, and I was about 10, and I've got three brothers. I'm one of four boys. Second oldest, I've got two younger than me. And my youngest brother, he's six years younger than I am. So by doing quick math, if I'm 10, he's four. I went to OPS, Burke High School. Very proud of it. Obviously, my math skills worked out. But I've got this four-year-old brother back when I was 10. And I, I was kind of a punk. And I, I knew how to take advantage of my younger brothers. And I had this really fun idea in my mind that Tuesday morning in the summertime, I decided that we were gonna play a game with my younger brother. And this game was gonna be called Retail Store. Now here's how the game Retail Store was gonna work out. And my four-year-old brother, he was so excited to play, he couldn't wait, he would play anything I told him to play. Well, here's how the game worked. I was gonna have him get out of his room for about five, 10 minutes or so. He was not allowed in his room. And while he was out of his room, I went in with a bunch of Post-it notes. And I wrote down all these prices on all of his stuff. Pillows and books and little stuffed animals and toys and toy cars. I wrote down little numbers and price tags on all these things. 50 cents, $1, $2, 5 bucks. It doesn't really matter. I just wrote down all these prices 
on these little post-it notes and stuck them all over his room. And the game was about to begin. I would be the owner, obviously, of the retail store. And Johnny, my youngest brother, he could come and shop in the store and give me money to buy back his stuff. Oh man, he was so excited. Now you might be thinking, okay, that's kind of a fun game, that's fine, whatever. Go get some Monopoly money and have fun. No, I saw an opportunity. I told my youngest brother, Johnny, go down, find mom's purse. Let's see how much cash you can get out of that thing and then you can go shopping at the retail store. And sure enough, Johnny, four years old, he really doesn't know what's going on. He goes down, he finds the purse in the kitchen where it always was. Sure enough, he found in that wallet some cash that he was more than happy to spend on his own things. And he came back up to his room where the retail store was ready to go. And I was, had a big old smile on my face. I was going to be the best owner. I was going to be the best storekeeper you'd ever meet. And sure enough, he starts walking around and, you know, he's pretending like he's interested in different things. And, he says, how much is that? And I said, well, it says $5, it's on there. How much is that? It's a buck. And sure enough, he starts picking up different things. And being the really nice guy, I said, yeah, I'll be more than happy to take that from you. I'll put it at the front of the room. You can continue shopping. And we're having a great time. And my mom, who has got like mom radar, and you moms, you know what I'm talking about, she heard no noise. There was no commotion coming on upstairs. Nobody was yelling at each other, nobody was crying. Therefore, my mom knew a problem was happening. And as every good investigator knows, she started working her way upstairs. And she still didn't really hear anything. She just heard kind of some laughing. And finally, she gets into our room and she says, hey, what's going on in here? And I'm really proud of myself. We're playing retail store. I'm 10, very, very proud of myself. And my younger brother, Johnny, he's all excited. He's like, yeah, I'm buying my stuff, as a four-year-old would say. My mom quickly figured out that this was not fake money. This was real money. And sure enough, in my hand, I had like 30 bucks because Johnny was continuing just to pay me over and over again for all of his stuff, to, just so he could have his stuff back. My mom was not happy. All of a sudden, Johnny figured out that I had been doing something wrong. And my mom, who already knew that, she liked to play this game. It was psychological warfare in my mind. But if I got in trouble during the day, I had to live with that guilt until my dad came home. And that was just the worst. So sure enough, it ruined the rest of my day because my mom immediately stopped it. She said, take the money, put it back down in my purse. She was so mad, she was even mad at Johnny for playing the game, a little four-year-old. She was so mad at me, she said, go to your room. You do not go out of your room until your dad comes home. I knew it was gonna happen. See, my family, we're all about spanking. We're all about loving through the rod. That's what we were all about. I knew it was going to happen. I was so scared. I was so nervous. It ruined my whole day. I stayed in my room the whole time. And you know, you do those things. You put on 10 pairs of underwear. You get your thickest pair of jeans. You get prepared. That's what I was all about that morning. And I knew I had done something wrong. I knew I was going to be punished for it. I knew it was coming. And my day was ruined. And we're going through this story in Nehemiah. And we're learning that the Israelites had been sinning for a long, long time. We go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, this is Nehemiah talking to God. It says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my family, father's family. 
we have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Now, we've been going through Nehemiah together for about six weeks. This is old information. We should know this by now. The Israelites have been sinning for many, many years, and they've been conquered by several different nations. At this point in Nehemiah's life, it was under the Persian Empire. And sure enough, in chapter 1, we recognize that the Israelites had finally been caught up with, and they had been conquered and captured, and their sin, not someone else, but their sin had caused judgment from God. And therefore, God allowed other nations to come in and conquer them, capture them, and to scatter them throughout an empire. That was one of the easiest ways to make sure that if you conquered a nation, they couldn't rise up and revolt against you. Because back then, it was simple. If I conquered this nation, I'm going to spread all these people out across my entire empire. That way, they're not close enough together to rise up against me and do a rebellion. So sure enough, under the Persian Empire, the nation of Israel was completely spread out. And there were just a few people left in Jerusalem. And what we've been learning in the book of Nehemiah is how these people in Jerusalem were just living in constant fear and being attacked on a regular basis because there was no one left to defend the city. The walls had been destroyed and everything was falling apart. And we read a story like this and we think, wow, that's a horrible situation. But if you're like me, I have a really hard time sometimes relating the Bible to my life. And I don't realize that what's going on in those words really will happen in my own life. And sure enough, if I'm living a life of sin, I had better expect that there's going uh, to be consequences for my actions. Sin is going to ruin my life. Sure enough, when I was 10 years old, sin was ruining my day because my mom caught me in the morning and I knew judgment was coming that night. The Israelites had sin going on in their nation and therefore their lives were being ruined. Their nation was being ruined. It was conquered. It was exiled. And this is what we've been studying for the last six weeks together. This is what sin can do to your life. In Psalm 32, verse 3, it says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Psalm 38, 4 says, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Proverbs 27, 3 says, A stone is heavy. And sand is weighty, but the resentment caused by a sinner is even heavier. Sin ruins life. And that's something that we don't talk about enough in the Christian church, at least not the Christian church here in America. I think we talk too much about how great it is when you become a Christian. You don't have to worry about sin anymore. And things are only going to get better and better and better. But we have to realize the consequences of sin. It will ruin your life. Sin wants to ruin your life. It wants to control you. Check this out in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. It says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Sin wants to conquer you. The Hebrew word there for it desires to have you, it means literally to conquer, to capture, to devour. 
Sin wants to devour us. It wants to ruin our lives. It wants to eat up everything around us. It wants to make sure that we feel like we're suffocating or like we're drowning in over our heads. This is what Israel was experiencing during the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah saw this. And yes, we've gone through several weeks now of what he did to intervene, and amazing things happened. He left his hometown where he was serving. It was in Susa, which was the capital of Persia, very, very far away from Jerusalem. He traveled all the way back to Jerusalem. He brought hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth of supplies and resources, hundreds of tons of new wood and rock and things to rebuild with. And he got back to Israel. We've learned this together. We've been studying this together. He inspired the people of Jerusalem to get hope to gather courage and to rebuild their city, to rebuild the walls around their city. And he did all of this because he had courage. He had big faith. He did not have any fear. And it's been an inspiring story, an amazing story that we've been going through together. 52 days it took them to rebuild all of the walls around Jerusalem. But today... Now that we have together gone through this whole lesson together, this whole story, Nehemiah's life together, we've seen what he's done in Jerusalem. Today, what I want to talk about is specifically what the Israelites did after everything was done. Because they understood by that point their sin had cost them a whole lot. They understood that sin had ruined their lives because they've lived it. And sure enough, when we get to Nehemiah chapter 9, which is where we're at for this morning. When we get to the Nehemiah 9, we see how anxious they are to confess their sin, to get it out of their lives. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It says, On October 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord, their God. Wow. Six hours standing outside Confessing your sin, listening to the word of God, confessing your sin again for six hours. By the way, no food. They were fasting. What type of commitment to confession is this? This is nothing that I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anyone, anyone personally or any church corporately, take six hours and confess sin. Six hours and just listen to somebody reading the Bible. I've never been a part of a worship service like that. What would force the Israelites, what would coerce, convict, what would make the Israelites think that they need to spend so much time confessing their sins to God? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. They had been living through hell. They had been living through horrible circumstances. We have an entire nation that really has lost its identity. They've been conquered. They've been exiled. They are spread out throughout the Persian Empire. They have no hope. And sure enough, this guy, Nehemiah, comes in and his buddy Ezra come in. We talked about him last week. 
And these two guys reunite the people in Jerusalem, give them hope again, and they were able to rebuild their walls in 52 days. And what is the natural reaction of the Israelites after this is done? They gathered everyone together, a massive assembly, and they spent six hours confessing sin and hearing the word of the Lord. Wow. Do we have that type of conviction when it comes to our own sin? Do we realize that the sin in our lives is actively trying to ruin us? It is actively trying to destroy us. Are we confessing our sin with the same type of fervor, the same type of anxiousness, excitement, commitment that the Israelites are? I don't think we fully understand the consequences of sin. Romans 6.23 is very simple. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I don't think we fully understand that sin will cost you your life. I don't think we understand that sin is trying to ruin your life. I don't think we get that. When I was 10, like I mentioned before, we hadn't finished the story yet because we got to get to the best part. Obviously, I'm waiting in my room. Oh, man, I'm so nervous. My dad is a big guy. Just so you guys know, he's 6'6". He's about 250. Sometimes he can lean down to about 247. He's a big guy. And when I was a kid, especially when I was 10, man, I was, I was not 6'2", what I am now. I was probably about that big, maybe a little bit bigger. I'm going to romanticize it. We're going to say that big. And my, my whole life was around just trying to be kind and please my parents. And, you know, I knew what the consequences were if I messed up. And today, I knew what I did. I mean, I very intentionally tried to steal money from my mom through the avenue of my younger brother. That's what I had done. I got that. I understood that. But man, judgment was coming. And my dad always came home, you know, five, six o'clock at night. Sure enough, my dad, my parents were so creative when it came to discipline. Like when we were little, little kids, and my older brother and I, we were the worst ones. The younger two, they were spoiled, rotten. Nobody cares about them. Us older two, man, we got, we got, we got punished. We got disciplined. But what happened was my parents, they figured out that if they took some painting sticks and they duct taped them together, it made a much more effective spanking stick. And it became the spanking stick. And sure enough, it was held in my dad's dresser in his bedroom. It was like a sacred spot, the spanking stick. This is a very different time, very different time, folks. <laughs> well, he came home about 5, 6 o'clock that night. I had spent the entire day preparing mentally, physically, you better believe I looked like I probably had about 10 extra pounds on me from down here below. It was rough. I came in my room, you know, uh, this is before cell phones, so my mom had to call my dad's office, so he was aware of what was going on. Walked in and uh, very firmly asked me the question they ask every single time. Do you know why you're going to get spanked today? Like, is that a rhetorical question? Obviously, I know why. I got caught. That's why. This is horrible. But sure enough, he asked me the question, do you know why you're about to get spanked today? And then, yep, he, he, uh, he executed the discipline. We'll say it that way. And I was crying because I was 10. And I had built this moment up so much in my mind over the last probably six hours. Um, it was just such a big deal. But you know something my dad did? And this happened every single time we got punished. It didn't matter if we were three years old, if we were 17, if we were getting grounded or whatever. My dad would always try to take some time afterwards and explain to me why he did it. And he would always say, I love you. This is why we discipline. And he, you know, at that moment, you don't really want to hug anybody. You're mad at the world, but he'd always give me a hug. 
after any type of discipline was conducted. And it was just how he did our family discipline. He's how he run the house, how he led the house. And it, man, at the time, I hated it. It's like, who are you to hug me? How dare you? Get out of my room. But looking back on it, man, I love that. Because that's exactly what God does for us. We sin. That's what we do as humans. We're imperfect. We live in an imperfect world and we mess up. Sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. And yes, consequences will always happen for sin. But it's because God loves us, not because he hates us, not because he's annoyed by us or he doesn't want to tolerate us anymore. There's this amazing story that gives you an incredible example of what God views sin and how God views sinners, which are two very different things. It's in Luke 15. Jesus is telling the story and he's talking about the prodigal son, the son that ran away from home. And maybe you're familiar with the story a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It'd take way too long. We've got to get you out of here in about five more minutes. Well, the summarization here is this. Younger son of two brothers... He decided one day that he did not want to wait for his dad to die before he took his dad's inheritance. So he told his father, I want everything you owe me, and I want it now. The father, doing something I'll never understand, completely illogical, gave him what he wanted. And the son takes it and he runs away. He goes out, lives this crazy party lifestyle, lavish living, doing his own thing. This is all in Luke 15. Sure enough, he runs out of money. All of a sudden, all of his friends are gone. All those people that wanted to hang out and party with him, they're all gone. And he finds himself completely broke, homeless, and feeding pigs on a farm as his job. So hungry that he envies the food that the pigs are eating. And he comes to his senses at this point in the story, and he says to himself, what have I done? I've sinned against my father and my household. I've got to go back home. And he starts rehearsing this speech in his mind. He's going to tell his dad, you know what? I've sinned against you. I've sinned against our house. I've embarrassed you. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just let me work in your property and I'll live with the servants. And he goes through the speech over and over and over again in his head. And he's walking his way back home. And it's a long walk. It probably takes many weeks. But sure enough, we get to, this is one of the best verses in the Bible, I think. Maybe I'm biased. We're in Luke 15, verse 20. The son is coming home, and it says, So he returned to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. That's like the best verse. Because the son was going home to confess. And he hadn't even gotten there yet. He was still a long way off, and the father sees him and runs out embraces him, gives him a hug. What does that tell me? That tells me that God is always watching and waiting for us to, to repent, to confess. God is always waiting for us to come back to him. And once we do, he will run out and meet us. He's not a tyrannical God where he's waiting on his throne and saying, you got to come all the way back and you better bring back some sort of penance. No, he's not that God. He's the God that wants a relationship with us so much so that he spends every single day waiting for us to come back to him. And when we finally do, when we finally confess and turn around from our sin, he will run out to us and meet us on the road and hug us and celebrate with us. It's like the best verse. 
But in order to get to that amazing experience with God, we've got to turn around and confess our sin. And if we don't turn around and confess our sin, we will lose our lives. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We're going to do a little song. While we're doing that, I've got a couple of questions for you guys. Reality is that days like today are always hard. It's not always a feel-good sermon where you're going to get on a Sunday morning. That's okay. But the truth of the matter is we cannot fully experience God's love if we are not fully aware of our sin. The Israelites were only able to experience God's immense plan for their lives when they were finally willing to acknowledge the sin in their life. And it wasn't until Nehemiah came around and spent this time with them that they recognized they were being punished because of their sins and the sins of their fathers and the fathers before them. And once they recognized that and they were able to rebuild the city, what did they do? They spent an entire day confessing their sin. Because they understood and they wanted it so bad. They wanted that relationship with God to be restored once again. Yeah, when you're a kid, you get punished by your parents. You get disciplined. Sure enough, 10 years old, I got disciplined a lot. That's just one story. I've got so many stories I could tell you guys you don't even know. But yeah, that one day I got disciplined by my dad. And he gave me a hug afterwards because the relationship could be restored. There wasn't any need for him to be angry with me anymore because it had been taken care of and because I was sorry for what I had done. And the relationship was restored. Sin is horrible, but confession is so exciting. It is so exciting because it gives us a chance to restore our relationship back to God. And he will run out on the road to meet us if we would just turn around and acknowledge what we've done wrong. So we've got this song. And just a couple of questions while we're singing. Is sin weighing you down? If so, what's stopping you from confessing your sin to God? Let's take a moment and sing together.